Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the fourth episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial markets could be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. As a former distributed software systems architect, I've always been frustrated by the failure of the financial industry to embrace technology and build smarter, modernized market systems. But I'd become resigned to the idea that the industry was full of technology-averse, old-school thinkers who just weren't ready to accept a significant change to the status quo. Our first three episodes completely shattered that perception. I couldn't possibly have been more wrong. Not only did Robert Friedland, a camel-riding mining executive, bring up blockchain before I even had a chance to bring up the limitations of current market systems, but then, in our last episode, Goldman Sachs Commodities Chief Jeff Curry told us that tokenization of commodity futures warehouse receipts is the single best use case that he's seen for the application of distributed ledger technology. When a guy with Jeff Curry's clout in the industry tells me that the single best application of blockchain is modernizing how commodity futures warehouse receipts work, I didn't want to waste any time going straight to the people who are working on doing exactly that. So this week's feature interview guest will be Tom McMahon. It's hard to find anyone with more experience in commodities markets than Tom, who's currently finishing up his fifth decade in the commodity futures business. Tom started as a runner in the early 1970s at the grand old age of 13, and he's been in the commodity futures market ever since. He was one of the youngest people to ever trade in the live commodity pits, and then later in his career, he went on to become a designer of the markets themselves. He was one of the designers of the Henry Hub natural gas futures contract, and he also helped to design the New York Mercantile Exchange, now known as NYMEX. These days, Tom is a co-founder of Abex Technologies, and he's working on, you guessed it, exactly what Jeff Curry told us last week was the single best application of distributed ledger technology that Jeff has ever heard of, replacing the paper bearer certificates that are used in commodity futures delivery with secure digital bearer instruments in the form of digital tokens on the Ethereum blockchain. Tom and I will start with some history of how the market has evolved over the years, and then dive into why ABEX is taking a two-pronged approach to the redesign of commodity futures to create a smarter market system which both embraces distributed ledger technology to modernize warehouse receipts, and also tackles the functional design of a physical delivery liquid natural gas contract, which helps achieve the goal of putting a price on carbon which Jeff Curry spoke about at length in last week's episode. My interview with commodity market veteran Tom McMahon is coming up next. And now with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Tom, normally when a person has worked in the same industry for more than 20 years, two full decades, we consider them to be very experienced. 
you're coming up on five decades, 50 years in the commodity business, not because you're an old guy, but because you started at the grand old age of 13. Tom, how is that even possible? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's interesting. I I was very fortunate to actually have been born a commodity kid. My dad was a cotton broker. He was a partner in, uh, at that time, a company called Hohenberg Brothers, and they were from Memphis, Tennessee. Their background was out of Germany, and the family had migrated to the U.S. in, in the 1860s and set up as a cotton merchant in the South, had gotten through the Civil War and succeeded for, for obviously, decades after that. And he, uh, he came out of the war, uh, unemployed soldier, and an opportunity was presented to him through an ad in the New York Times, uh, a gentleman named Carl M. Loeb had posted a, an ad and said, hey, I'm willing to hire two veterans uh, to come to Wall Street. And uh, my dad and one of his buddies um, who had, had flown with him during the war in China, Burma, India, said, let's try it. And they actually were the only two guys who showed up. And there were two jobs available. One was on COMEX to trade silver, and the other one was on the cotton exchange to trade cotton. And they flipped a coin, and my dad got cotton, and, and his buddy got COMEX. And 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 that's how I grew up. And it was in the physical business. So I had a, as a kid, I remember going into his office and he would have cotton samples to look at the, what was called the you know short or long middling, meaning the length of the, the actual strands of the cotton and he would gauge it. And we would go down to the exchange on the holidays as, as kids do. I mean, today it's like, you know, bring your daughter or bring your son to work day. In those days, it was usually Thanksgiving or, or, or Christmas Eve and you'd go to the exchange and you'd get to sit on the trading floor and watch your dad work. There were very few women in, the, in those days. It was all men. The exchange started a program, a summer program back in the, in the 1960s. And it was basically you got to work for six weeks. You had to be 13 years old. And what you were doing really were replacing the, the, the staff that ran the exchange, the runners, the chalkboard boys, the mailroom guys, so they could take their vacations earn a little bit of money and get a little exposure to the financial industry. And, and me being a commodity kid, obviously I got a chance to do that. But um, my, my dad, um, he didn't just, he didn't just bring me. He had a, he had friends of his and several of the kids from my town that were part of our church or our school. And their dads were cops and firemen and, and uh, a couple of them were plumbers and electricians and wouldn't have had a financial industry exposure. And, and, and they, they got to come down too. My dad could bring five kids every year for six weeks. And so I got to do that when I was 13. And what we did, uh, the first job was to basically, we in those days, the trading pits were obviously in the center of the floors and then surrounding the pits were the, were the booths. It was the Merrill Lynch and the Shearsons. And, and your job was to take the paper from the broker and bring it back to the booth. Or if there was an order going into the ring, you took it from the booth and you brought it to the broker. That was our job. And you just listened and watched and and got exposure. And that was your first year. And then I went back for, for a total of four years from 13 to 16, and I progressed through the jobs. One of my, one of my jobs was to be in the mailroom, uh, which was actually a step up to get off the floor. Because in the mailroom, you got to see everything. That was where, uh, you know, we're now in a world of electronics and computers. In those days, it was all about mail and, and uh, teletypes and such. But probably the most interesting one was when I was 16. At 16, you could, you could become bonded. And in those days, being bonded meant that you had the opportunity to actually move the, the warehouse receipts, the bearer bonds, and uh, uh, from the different exchanges, as well as there were, there were runners for the stock exchange also. They actually moved the shares to the different desks. And, and I was on the commodity side. So I, I became a runner. And, um, and you literally were a runner. 
your, your job was outside. You weren't on the exchange. You were outdoors for the summer and you moved around the, the lower Manhattan area. It was Broad Street and Wall Street and Pine and William and Hanover Square and uh, Nassau. And it was between the banks and, and all the different exchanges and the brokerage houses. And uh, it was uh, it was pretty interesting. You look back today and you go, boy, that's absurd. Why would you put a 16-year-old on the street with bearer bonds? But actually, it was the anonymity of it. You had so many kids running around. Nobody knew who, what, uh, what was in, in whose bag kind of thing. And it was a different time and a different age. But for me, it was an amazing experience because, you know, I was a kid from the cotton markets. I understood those. But all the interrelated markets at that time were were moving these physical bear bonds or receipts, warehouse receipts. Gold hadn't started free trading yet. It was all based on silver at that time. And uh, and, and the guarantee banks, uh, Morgan Bank was called Morgan Guarantee Bank at that time. And they were the, they were the financier against warehouse receipts and, and, and uh, the silver receipts. So my daily routine was to go to the clearinghouse, pick up our obligations, whether we had to take or pay. And uh, depending on the day, if I was a taker, I would pick up warehouse receipts, cotton receipts there, and I would take them to the banks for cash. And if we were a payer, we would use silver receipts as our collateral to pay. So my job was to move them around and make sure that I had the correct amounts and, uh, and that nobody got a hold of my leather pouch I was running around, uh, as I was running around Wall Street. And, and at the ripe old age of 16, I decided that there was, uh, I could make more money and I thought my Wall Street career was over. So <laughs> it was a great experience. Um, I actually uh, went to work in my hometown for the for the public works department. That actually paid more than my job in Wall Street at that time. So, uh, yeah, and then I uh, did not realize that uh, a number of years later I would be back on the street. But, uh, yeah, it was a great time. Tom, the amazing part of that story to me is you're 16 years old, and they yeah. got you with a leather satchel with literally millions of dollars. And this is the early 1970s when millions of dollars was, you know, uh, enough to buy yeah. a – a Beverly Hills mansion, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. millions of dollars of silver certificates, which were bearer instruments, which means whoever's got physical property can trade them in. So you literally had the opportunity to take your leather satchel full mm -hmm. of uh, silver receipts, go to the COMEX and say, I'm, I'm here to take physical delivery. I got my mom's car outside because I'm not old enough to drive <laughs> yet. And, and right. you know, I'm retiring at the age of 16 and we're moving to South yeah, America, yeah. right? You didn't yeah. do that. Uh, instead, you came no. back a few years later, and I think you became one of the youngest people to actually trade in the pit on the exchange. Tell us about that, and where did your career go from there? Yeah, I was, I was actually very fortunate. I went on to uh, uh, military prep school in high school in, in uh, the late 60s, early 70s, and it was a great uh, disciplinary career. I had actually wanted to go to the Naval Academy, did not get, got on the wait list and decided to... Uh, to go study history and economics in Maryland, actually on the other side of the Chesapeake. And that led me, I thought I was going to be actually going to law. And coming into my senior year of, of university, my dad and I did a road trip and uh, we had a discussion and he said to me, he goes, you know, I really like for you to come into work, come into business with me. I'd love to pass the business to you and create a legacy. And I went like, man, I don't know. I wasn't quite sure, but he said, so I finished university in December and law school wasn't going to start until September. So uh, what they would call out here in Asia, gap year. So he goes, listen, uh, you know, uh, come down and work, uh, make some money and then go to school. And I did. And I went down there in February of, of 77 and uh, 
well, the rest is history. I never left. As it came time to potentially go to law school, I, I, I felt passionately in love with, with the market. I had a different eye than I had when I was a young kid. Uh, when I was 16, I was now my, in, in, I was 21 and I was like, no, this is what I want to do. So I didn't go to law school. I got a job as a phone clerk and, uh, and my dad was a tough taskmaster. He cut me no slack. And I worked like everybody else uh, at that entry level position. And we had a great phone. We, uh, we were doing both cotton and juice at the time. And it was, it was Cargill. Uh, Cargill uh, was acquiring uh, the Hohenberg brothers. So we went for a transition at that point in time from uh, into the Cargill family. And it was, it was an eye-opening experience because it went from this, this world of what I knew as a legacy of a family to seeing the entire financial industry around the commodity industry at that time. And it wasn't just about cotton. By that point, the, uh, they, they were opening up what was called the CEC, Commodity Exchange Center at Four World Trade Center. And it was a combination of four exchanges. Uh, prior to that, we had all operated independently and you had to run from one to the other. If you're going to, some people did cross trade, but you physically had to move. Now you could walk across one trading floor you could trade cotton and juice, or you could walk over to coffee, sugar, and cocoa and step across to, uh, to, to NYMEX, which was still a potato market at that point in time, uh, or beginning its transition to energy. Or you turned to the right, and it was COMEX, the gold and silver markets. The, the opportunity then came very quickly. There really weren't a lot of young people in the business. It was a lot of the industry was like my dad. They, were, they were, had been World War II vets, and they'd come out, and here we are almost you know 20 plus years on and there there wasn't a new generation so they i got a market opportunity to to buy a seat on the cotton exchange and and become a member and it was uh, given to me by people that i had serviced on the telephone um they were willing to back me and uh, the gentleman i acquired my seat from was retiring a gentleman named george flotard who was a bit of a legacy himself on in the cotton markets now, how old were you at that time when you had a, your own seat on the exchange? Right. I was at, at that time, I, w- I was just turning 23, right? And I thought I knew a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh and I look back now. I was such a young buck. And the interesting thing was there was another young guy on the floor uh, who was doing the same thing I was. He, w- he was a clerk for one of the biggest cotton merchants at that time. And his name was Paul Jones. We know him today as Paul Tudor of Jones. And Paul and I actually went through the membership class together in September that year. And um, we, uh, we got razzed, uh, razzed by the board of directors. We both got approved, fortunately, which was great. We had great sponsors. His backing was a gentleman named Billy Donovan, who was a legacy in the markets. And, and mine, obviously, was my dad and his relationships. But um, they put us, through, put us through the ringers and the hoops. And at the end, they teased us. We were, we were actually the first college graduates to become members of the exchange. There were guys that had college degrees, but they had done it through night school or the GI Bill and had done it over a lot of years. We, so they felt that we were sort of uh, silver spoon kids and they razzed us about it. But And then it was sort of the opening up of the doors at that point. And then the, mar- the industry started to change a lot and commodities became the awareness of it. It wasn't an isolated market anymore. People were realizing uh, uh, that uh, and gold at that time was just starting to come into silver actually was the first mover the public became aware of commodities as an asset class. And, I, and that was significant. And probably the guy who, who recognized that most was, was Paul. 
he's built an empire on the back of that very successfully on that vision. So yeah, so we, I, I went from there and, and it, it became an interesting journey because as, as I, I was trading cotton and juice at that time, and then a market opportunity opened up for me to trade sugar. So I got exposure to that market and that connected me to the European markets for the first time because sugar was traded both in London and New York. And you traded it off of the, uh, what was called the sterling market. So London market was trading pounds sterling and obviously a dollar-based contract in New York. So that that was another learning process. And then the energy markets began to evolve and commodities, agro commodities quieted down in 81, 82 and energy was just starting to pick its head up. And um, I'd gotten exposure to the energy markets actually via the agro markets. The agro markets utilized LPG, liquefied propane gas, as a, a crop in terms of in such as cotton, it was utilized for crop drying exercise. And in terms of uh, FCOJ, concentrate juice, it was used as a refrigerant. So we actually had an energy hedge that was done through the agro markets. And the first energy markets actually traded on the New York Cotton Exchange, not on NYMEX. And they came into their own being in 1975. So I got exposure to energy and then uh, an opportunity opened up to, to move to NYMEX and I did in late 81, early 82. And the markets were still early days. They were only trading refined products at that time, uh, gasoline and fuel oil. And they were setting the stage for crude oil to come in. And, and the first contracts, uh, the WTI contracts were getting looked at. And in those days, the exchanges were very organic. It was the members, the floor members and the commercial members outside the floor that served on the committees. You served on the committees or the steering committees and the board of directors, obviously, but a new products committee. So guys would go, hey, in NYMEX's case, they needed to, and it wasn't called NYMEX at the time. It was the New York Mercantile Exchange. It was very formal in its name. They had to change. The, the potato markets had quieted down. Uh, they needed something new. So they, energy was their savior. They obviously, no one knew the, the scale of it as it's come to today, but even at that point in time, there was a huge interest to, to bring some reference price and market formation to how you traded refined products as well as crude oil. And then crude came to the market in 83. I was part of that committee. Uh, I didn't lead it, but it was, it, was, it was the first time that I got a chance to do actually what my, my dad had done early days. He was part of the, the, uh, the gentleman who had written the contracts for the uh, Florida Concentrated FCOJ which became famous with uh, Dan Aykroyd and, and, and Eddie Murphy in Trading Places. They wrote that contract in 65 under very similar circumstances. Cotton had been very challenged at that point in time, and they needed a new contract, and OJ was their savior. Similarly, so I got, I got my chance to do that in NYMEX. Got my, got my feet wet in looking at the crude formation, and then uh, years later, I had the opportunity to lead the, the, the market development around uh, what's now the Henry Hub natural gas contracts, and then the power contracts that came after that. So, yeah, great experience. Tom, let's go a little deeper on the Henry Hub natural gas contract, because frankly, you know, as a futures trader, I never really thought about how important the design of the contract. I'm a technology guy. My first career was in software. So I tend to think about the shortcomings of the exchanges in terms of the, the way the electronic systems don't work as well as I think they could. But really, there's a lot of functional design that goes into these contracts and how they work. So talk us through, as you're designing something that was brand new, the Henry Hub natural gas contract, why was the delivery point Henry Hub so important? Why not pick someplace else? And, and what else goes into designing one of these things? 
Yeah, I, I will tell you that, um, and, and sometimes it's literally lick your finger and put it up in the air and see which way the wind is blowing. The science of picking a location, I think, is is much more well vetted today than it was back then. It was pretty opportunistic. The Henry Hub is kind of an interesting contract because it was a confluence of a lot of points that allowed for the Henry Hub and natural gas trading to actually come to the market. You You had to have a sequence of events, and one of them was the deregulation by the Interstate Commerce Commission of the transmission of and transportation of, of gas and power across state lines was one. The other one was the, the California Clean Air Act and the deregulation of power in California in 8990, uh, the beginnings of that. And the understanding of very early understandings of cleaner energy. Obviously, we're, it's, it's, it's much more well understood today, maybe not always embraced, but in those days, gas... Coal was under pressure even back then, and, and it still lives today in, in its own legacy. But um, the concept of going to cleaner energy and, and natural gas was one of them. Uh, it was also plentiful. You know, the U.S., especially out of the Gulf Coast, um, with the wells that were in the Gulf Coast, it was, an actually, it was actually an excess of, of gas at that point in time. So it was technically cheap, and the utilities – could see demand now that they had a lot of deregulatory issues and independent power producers could actually be competitive and get their power onto a grid. So they understood that they wanted to have better hedging on what was their feedstock. So all of those things sort of came together in 87, 88, 89. How we got to the Henry Hub is kind of interesting. It actually wasn't supposed to be the Henry Hub. It was actually supposed to be in Katy, Texas. And it's an area called the Katy Interchange, which is west of Houston. That was a known transmission uh, and transportation point uh, interchange for, for gas. We, we were focused on that. The, the concept of how you build a contract didn't vary very much going from Katy to the Henry Hub. But how we got to the Hub was kind of neat. We were at a conference in San Antonio, a group of guys from the exchange, and we were approached by some a very uh, interesting gentleman who said, why are you guys doing this at Katy? Why don't you come take a look at what we've got? And what they had was an underutilized transportation point is what it was. And, and it was very similar to back in, in 8182 when the WTI contract formed up. Actually, the first tank and storage facilities in Cushing, Oklahoma were the same thing. They were an underutilized capacity that the, the actual the capacity people were looking for somebody to fill up their tanks and rent and lease their space. And they said, hey, why don't you do it here? And there was some logic Henry Hub was very similar. It was a, a really robust piece of infrastructure that wasn't utilized to its capacity. So it would allow for us to come in as an exchange to be able to guarantee that we could put enough gas in a pipeline to take and make deliveries and perform on the contract. And that's how it began. Uh, the market wasn't convinced about it. They had just gotten to understand crude oil and and the metrics of correlated value of you know how you, how you priced energy. And here we are. Power's deregulating at the same time. California's pushing into clean air. They're changing gasoline specifications. And now comes natural gas, uh, very understood only by a few people that were in the cash industry or in, in the utilities. As you can say, the rest is history because the logic around it was very good. And it was an interconnected pipeline. And transportation is really important in commodities, logistics, as we've come to know. That, that beginning of that first point of price in, in Sabine, Louisiana, to connect it to a, uh, our first secondary pricing point was Chicago City Gate, which 
was basically the other end of a pipeline to the north. Now we had two prices. We're, we're how many years on? So we're, we're 30 years on from the beginning of Henry Hub. There's 362 different pricing points off of that single basis today uh, across uh, continental United States and, and, and greater North America. And there was actually an article just written by the CME that even the the expansive utilization of that point in time and price has really changed the the financing, how you finance energy in a broad stroke, and and really expanded the utilization of a cleaner energy piece. And now we're in that next phase of of transition as we move towards the LNG market. And just for any new listeners that are joining us this week, I want to refer you back to the previous episode of Smarter Markets, where Goldman Sachs Commodity Chief Jeffrey Curry explained in detail the importance of these delivery locations for energy contracts, such as whether it be West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil, which is settled in Cushing, Oklahoma. Jeff talked at some length about the reasons that that's no longer the right place for that contract to settle. And uh, so this selection is really important. We'll come back to the LNG story later, but I want to go to something else that Jeff said last week, which is he thinks the single best use case that he's seen for distributed ledger technology, what some people call blockchain technology, is to tokenize the warehouse receipts that are used in commodity future settlement. And that speaks very much to what Miriam Ayati told us the week before about her vision of eventually getting to a fully tokenized supply chain where we're tracking the production and development all the way up through the trading of these commodities on a blockchain or another distributed ledger so that we can actually trace back the history of all of the transactions. That probably sounds like kind of pie-in-the-sky futuristic stuff to some people, but that's what you and Josh Crum founded a company to do, really. And there's more to Abex Technologies, but you're working personally right now on pioneering this new area. And I, I personally, I think it's kind of ironic because you're the guy who at the age of 16 was trusted with those physical bearer certificates. And now you're the guy who's designing a better system that will overcome the, the security loopholes that existed back when you were 16. Tell us more about that. I mean, you listened to Robert Friedland, Miriam Ayati, Jeff Curry's interviews. I have to tell you, I was surprised by them, Tom, because I thought... When Josh Crum first told me about this idea, I said, look, as a former software architect and a commodity futures trader, I get it. And I think you're, you've, you've just got the recipe for the future here. But my prediction at that time was people in this industry aren't going to get it. And then I interview Robert Friedland. He's talking about blockchain before I could even bring it up. Maria Mayati is, is envisioning the entire supply chain being tokenized. And Jeff Curry, who's you know old school, dyed-in-the-wool commodities guy, is saying, we got to get warehouse certificates on a blockchain. I was blown away by that. So you're actually working on this. First of all, what, what's your experience been in terms of how ready the market is? Are, are, are Miriam, Jeff, and Robert, you know, just particularly leading edge people? Or is this something that people are really ready for? And how do you imagine it working? What are you guys actually working on now? Yeah, I mean, um, going back to running running bear bonds around in a, in a leather satchel uh, on, on summer afternoons on Wall Street, uh, that's called risk today. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, you would never be allowed to do that. Um Pushing forward, I, I, for, for me on a personal level, when I first looked at this opportunity, when I first got a look at a blockchain, uh, basically, and, and actually it was with Josh, it was back in 2013, 
And it was for a completely different commodity. It was based on gold and one of his first ventures that he had done around uh, bit gold and uh, ultimately became gold money. But it was the logic around securitizing all of the relevant information at a single point in time and held by a single point and entity. And potentially could be made fully transparent in, in terms of decentralized market infrastructure. And that could be done by choice. But coming from the exchanges over the years and looking at the paper-based markets and, and sort of how things were collateralized and leveraged, who were the points along that life cycle of a commodity, whether it was a future, a derivative, or a spot, or sitting in a warehouse or in a well or a silo, you had a lot of points and we took it for granted that uh, that's just how the system is, right? But the system has become way more sophisticated. And those fragile points of risk or, or potential fraud or, or uh, unintended disruption are really can't be tolerated today. And traditional markets are in transition, there's no doubt. The, the new market architectures are definitely challenging uh, those traditions, whether it's on a, on a risk-weighted basis or just infrastructure basis or revenue basis. Some people just don't want to let go of their old ways. But the way a commodity is financed, and, and I know Mariam understands this really well and referred to it, and, and it's something she's passionate about changing, and, and, and as, as is the knowledge that Robert has had over the years coming out of the mining industry, when you bring something out of the, grind, out of the ground or out of a mine or out of a field, it's the beginning of a, a value transformation, right, with many hands touching it. The risk today is one, markets are moving at a much greater speed than they had previously. Two, the the financial entities that are touching or financing that, you know, they're not the, the local agro bank in Nebraska as they would have been previously. They're large financial institutions or investment entities that are looking for accountability and 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 uh, transparency on the transactions and how they could best de-risk them. Coming out of the commodity exchanges, we actually at points in time, literally, it was Excel spreadsheets that were recording a warehouse receipt, right? And systems lived in isolation. Um, There was no interconnectivity or interoperability. Middle and back offices were owned independently by different brokerages. The exchange was sort of in the middle, whether it was matching at the end of a a delivery cycle or or an expiration on on an exchange. But what happened after it, once it went X exchange, it really dropped into this OTC world that could be very opaque and, and it was very paper dependent. That paper dependency, we like to think that all people are decent and act in good faith. But when people realize that they could take that same piece of paper and go to three or four different, uh, let's just do two, take it to two different people and get and borrow against it equally when, when in reality, they only had one product underlying it. Those were gray area accepted practices. Today, that's not tolerated. And how do you change that? For me, I'd seen a lot of this happening, especially in Asia, because you've got a massive physical difference between the different trading centers, production centers, storage, shipping, really with no unified platforms across any of the exchanges. And and with the different shipping entities and the different storage and logistics companies, they all had their, their warehouse receipt systems are unique to them, right? Going from paper-based bills of lading to electronic bills of lading is really only something coming to the forefront. But the bills of lading even live in in their own systems. They're not particularly interconnected directly to the exchanges or to the risk-based platforms. What I saw the opportunity was we could take all of those ancillary pieces 
and actually potentially put them into a single point in time of recording, right? So it would have to be initially commodity by commodity, but you could still take all of the relevant pieces of a commodity, whether it was source, time, location, price, beneficial owner, date, vintage, weight, all the specifications, purity. Those live in a lot of different places today, even today. You can put that into a single point in time. And that was really where we began that. So we began it with gold. And gold was an easy one to do it. You could pick either 995 or four nines gold and you could pick a weight. So say you picked a kilo or a large bar in London, 400 ounces, which were standards, right? You picked a licensed warehouse like a Brinks and Brinks has multiple locations. So you potentially could have multiple delivery points. But as long as you could have a, a, a refinery that had a certification, LBMA is the, the certifier of that. Gold was an easy point to sort of like it's the training wheels for us to get blockchain and distributed ledger recording and the first smart contracts. And now we've gone considerably beyond that. Personally, I'm working in, in, in carbon, which is a, a digital asset to begin with or an intangible asset uh, from a regulatory framework. So it's it's that's a very a system that's been got good registries and, and, and has frameworks around it, but it's not operated at any central point in time. Uh, it's independent. If you want to call it a warehouse, um, there are independent warehouses that hold these carbon credits, and it's pretty much an OTC market. Um, trying to bring that into an environmental compliance on a scale or a scalable vision, the blockchain and distributed ledger architectures and smart contract recordings is really uh, going to be revolutionary in, in this particular instance. Um, but it's applicable across the entire commodity lifecycle. And into what they're talking like green finance, into the green bond markets. And Jeff touched on, you know, you've got core carbon, but it's what's above carbon, what we call SDGs, the sustainable development goals. It's basically carbon plus. What are the differences you're going to make in society on the ESG frameworks? That can all be recorded in, in a single place in time. And again, transparently. And I think that's really one of the, one of the big driving points for, in Mariam is taking opacity out of the market. And, and that's revolutionary in the financial markets. The markets today really succeed in silos, you know, uh, proprietary data, anonymity, and such. Good marketplaces, good liquidity, but it doesn't, it's, it's vertical, not lateral. And I think that's the transition into lateral. Now, the two biggest points that Jeff made in his interview last week were, number one, that we've got to figure out a way to put a price on carbon. And number two, he said that we need to figure out how to tokenize these warehouse receipts so that we can start using distributed ledgers and blockchains to actually make this market more modern than it's been. You guys are really building both of those things. And, and frankly, you know, we, we didn't have the opportunity to know that Jeff was going to say that until we interviewed him last week. So I, I, I don't think this is just coincidence. Is it great minds thinking alike? Or did you look at this problem top down and say, okay, well, you know, Merriam's vision of everything being tokenized, you can't, you got to start somewhere. It seems like you started on tokenizing warehouse receipts and figuring out the mechanism that puts a price on carbon as the first things you're taking on. Right. And, and, and that came from a personal experience of seeing it being incredibly sloppy. <laughs> and, and sloppy actually presented opportunities for people to make a lot of money 
call it gaming the system, wasn't necessarily done in, 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 from a fraudulent basis, but it was just opportunistic because there wasn't a unified system, right? There were lots of gaps um, and people stepped into those gaps and, and, and exploited it. I think for me, from a commodity aspect, what I saw uh, broadly across Asia was there was no fungibility. There was fungibility in the underlying product. Like if you moved a barrel oil from the Middle East to, to, to Japan, that wasn't done on an exchange in Asia. It was done in two counterparties agreeing to either a short-term spot contract for a boat or, or a long-term 10-year contract of supply. And then they had to go look for a market to hedge it in, Right. So you took you you'd go to a the closest correlated hedge in say the Brent oil market in London or or maybe you use WTI or some people use the DME sour crude contracts to to hedge that crude oil, but it wasn't a perfect hedge, and it didn't have performance. You were still outside that. All you had was a price because you're delivering oil outside traditional markets. What I wanted to do was could we create a centralized warehouse receipt market? that would record the daisy chain of those transactions from the time it, a boat was loaded. And those boats get traded on the water potentially, right? But there was no recording of that. But in the meantime, you had banks that were financing that cargo all the way across that daisy chain, those 45 days that it was on the water. And you know, um, if it wasn't for satellites uh, looking down on those ships today, a lot of times it was blind. You didn't know where the ship was, right? Now you do know where the ships are. But what I, I, I looked at that and I realized that that could live again in a single point in time, and but the system providers in the traditional Microsoft Windows-based market architectures really didn't have a, a scalable system. But then I looked at blockchain for the first time, and I went to me it was a solution to a problem of of this recording of this commodity trade lifecycle again in a single point, transparently. Right? It could be shared. It could be used as the neat thing about the about the chain is that it's immutable and irrefutable. It cannot be amended, right? If you build on a block, you're doing exactly that. It's like Legos. That that original block still exists. It can't be erased. It can't go away. So a deal recorded on on a blockchain is is an electronified contract. The change was would people accept that, right? And there were test cases, and it actually. One of the first test cases out here was in electronic bills of lading for shipping in, in Asia. Very often, a ship would get to a port and the paperwork would arrive nine days later. The ship would have been already unloaded and sailed, and then the paperwork would show up uh, you know, in snail mail. Now, you could record all the inventory in that ship, all the beneficial owners of the different parts of it, say if it was a containerized ship. And for security reasons, the port facilities could get to look at this thing before it even landed. So it had a lot of beneficial effects on the EBLs and the banks. The banks could could lend more credibly against a, a cargo. So that was one of the first use cases. For me, looking at carbon, sustainability is obviously very much a buzzword and, and even more so now coming out of COVID and the, the Paris Accords. Um, there was no solution for how you took the Paris Accords and the different um, uh, metrics for the emissions trading schemes that are going to be built on it or the uh, tax compliance schemes or the carbon clubs because the underlying asset hadn't been defined yet. So Jeff's point about having a core carbon price was very important. And the only way you can have a core carbon price is that you've got to create a, a, a centralized venue that creates a specification. And a spec isn't just one point in time. 
meaning it's not just one a forest in Colombia or or a methane gas capture in West Texas. You have to create forestry to to encompass the trees, or you've got to create a soil-based solution, uh, which is being done today in, in, in general, or in terms of energy, a methane capture structure. And what I look back at was just my, and I think very similar to Jeff's and also Robert's, our experience of how how contract formation and how things formed up around uh, Robert's expertise was he was referred to copper quite often. That's around the LME, right? Which is still a good functional market today. And I think Jeff referred to it also the legacy history going back into the uh, you know two hundred years. It's it's all about the ability to to get a, a a view on the underlying product that is unencumbered by someone trying to make it opaque, right? Or who holds the definitive record of that that underlying commodity? That is what's differentiating the market today and, and disruptively. The the commodity can be recorded now the demand on, is, is going back into source, right? Part of that is LBMA conversation about conflict gold, right? So the uh, now you've got to get back to the mine heads in, in, into um, – into Africa to make sure that this gold that is coming out, that fits well on a blockchain. From the moment you can do an inspection out of Minehead, you can bring it all the way through a refinery to shipping into a vault, into a bank, into a beneficial owner recording. That can be done with commodities. They can be done in terms of copper. It can be done in terms of, of carbon. And we have a conversation out here for LNG now, going basically out of out of the compression stations, loading it onto a ship, transporting into a regasification facility, full traceability and the carbon footprint around that. And that's complementary to the use case for LNG and pricing of the LNG itself. Tom, I want to come back to LNG and that market in just a few minutes, because that's really fascinating too. But just to get my head around all of this, in the old system, which a lot of our listeners are familiar with, if I go on the COMEX and I buy a gold futures contract, and then I stand for physical delivery... They don't, you know, send me a FedEx with gold bars. What they send me is a physical warehouse receipt, a piece of paper, which is literally good for gold. I can exchange that by going to the COMEX warehouse in New York City, and I can get my 100 ounces of gold. There's lots of problems with that system. First of all, that paper certificate, you could lose it, in which case you'd be screwed. It could be forged. It could be double-pledged or rehypothecated uh, in all kinds of shady lending schemes. There's all kinds of problems with that old system. So at the first step of what you're building right now in this new commodity exchange or this new commodity futures exchange, you're creating a system where instead of getting a paper warehouse receipt, Instead, what you get is a digital token, a secure digital bearer instrument that's built on top of the Ethereum smart contract system, which is basically a digital warehouse certificate. And that eliminates the double pledging risk. It eliminates the fraud and forgery risk. At the same time, it creates a fungible digital instrument which could be literally moved all over the world and and, and traded all over the world. Uh, that's absolutely fascinating. Now, how much of this, in terms of what you're working on now, actually incorporates Robert Friedland's vision, where it's not just a, a warehouse receipt that you get 100 ounces of gold, but there's actually some information in that digital certificate about where that gold came from? 
Yeah, uh, yeah, digital DNA and it, it is is what it is. And there's a lot of different ideas of how to do that. Robert's uh, alluding to basically copper, I should say. And we're seeing a lot of a lot of thoughts around this. Um, part of it is sustainability. Part of it is is uh, is the source material uh, of basically any any commodity is important today. From uh, you know under money laundering, under terrorist financing, you can put a lot of different mantra on on commodities uh, why they want to have traceability. But the reality is, putting it on blockchain is really interesting for me, and I think Robert also too. One, it's not just about the underlying property of, of, of the commodity. It, it's the additionality, what can be attached to it. One, source traceability, single point of compliance, alleviating the potential of double counting or double lending, right? Uh, a, single, a single point of definitive information uh, that is open. Anybody theoretically can access that and see that if potentially what is the grade and spec of that particular commodity, but what is its ESG? footprint, right? Was this produced in, in, a, in, a, in a green manner? And there's, I think uh, there's a lot of logic around green aluminum uh, or aluminium, if you're from the European side, as well as green copper potential uh, as an investable asset. The, the, one of the points for me is what we've been able to do is tie the warehouse directly to the actual holdings within the exchange, to the open interest, the open positions on both a spot market and a futures market, to the collaterals, to the actual cash in, in within the system, to that you've got a definitive record in real time that on any, any given day, you can look at what's in a warehouse, whether it's a, a copper warehouse or a carbon registry warehouse, and have unquestioning uh, ability to define the market and the scale and demand, right? Whether it's supply or demand. Um, the one of the big problems, um, and this goes back to you, you used Comex previously. There had been a lot of questions over the years, especially with the rise of the gold ETF, right? And the gold ETF is a synthetic product that's trading against a deliverable future, which is the Comex that don't always deliver, meaning that not every Comex contract traded ever stands for delivery. But by in theory, under the, the COMEX contract, good delivery market, that if you're long a COMEX contract, in theory, they will always perform if you want to take it to the market for delivery. Underlining that was the COMEX vaults, HSBC and JP Morgan at a point in time stored the, stored the metal for, uh, for, for COMEX. There was never a transparent audit was, was one of the claims. And, and what was in the vault was in theory never really tied in real time to what was actually transacting on the exchange and left a lot of debate. Uh, a lot of articles were written. Um, a lot of money was traded against whether the gold was really there or not and made for great stories and drama. Um, today, that's we can't tolerate that <laughs> in the world we're in today. If I've got a million tons of, of X commodity uh, in my warehouses and I've got X amount hedged, and we've got an X amount of, of collateral pledged against it, they all have to be tied together. And a digital ledger, an electronic warehouse receipt system, and a middle and back office process that can do that in real time every day is really the gold that I think we all have in this market. To date, we've been able to achieve that relative to the carbon market. Uh, as we've set it up, I, I see that achievable, uh, especially within the base metals market, as it's referred to Robert, 
and I, and I know there's a lot of conversations with, with London about uh, getting to that point in time. Believe it or not, there's still a big legacy from a regulatory standpoint of the demand of actually producing paper receipts and, and, and uh, not fully electronifying uh, those markets yet. So we'll see if it ever gets to that full transition. But the ones that do get digital will have additionality, as Robert spoke about. And I think the ESG, the, the green, green alley or green copper, are going to be highly important going forward for the investment community. Uh, and because I think there's been a systemic shift in the understanding of where we need to be, not where we've been in, in terms of the next leg for the market structure. Tom, right now, you and your team at ABEX are engaged in designing and building a new commodity futures exchange, which will be based in Singapore and domiciled from a regulatory jurisdiction standpoint in Singapore under the MAS. And it is going to implement this whole model of the way that you settle commodities for physical delivery is what you're getting is a digital token as opposed to a paper receipt that's built on the Ethereum blockchain using the Ethereum smart contract system. And that's actually being built right now today. That is not someday pie in the sky future stuff. That's here and now. But that's not the only thing that you're working on. The other big aspect of this, and frankly, for me, as even being an energy trader, I trade oil futures all day long. I didn't really understand why liquefied natural gas, LNG, is not just another commodity. It really plays a role in what Jeff was telling us about putting a price on carbon and this whole ESG transition and so forth. So explain for maybe people who don't work in that part of the market and don't understand this, as I certainly didn't, what's so special about LNG, liquefied natural gas? Why is that an important market? Why are you guys focusing so much of your energy on building that market in Singapore? Good question. Thanks. I mean, LNG is a very unique energy form. Basically, for 30 years, it was a market that was fairly irrelevant to most of the uh, the carbon or the carbon molecule consuming world. And part and partial to that was there wasn't a huge pressure put on anybody to wean themselves off of dirtier energies. Japan dominated that market partially out of that they had um, they had seen the opportunity to basically turn off their own coal-fired power plants. Their relationship to the supply, the, one of the core suppliers of LNG, which was the Middle East, had a good relationship. And actually LNG was sort of a throwaway fuel back 20, 30 years ago. It was fairly cheap and there was virtually no volatility in the price, which would really fit the metric for for the Japanese energy consuming and, and at the government level. So uh, LNG was owned by them for the most part. Fast forward, you know, you come come up to 10, 15 years ago in the, in the first round of a, a cleaner view on energy um, and the, sort of the same position that nat gas began to fill in in the 90s and the early 2000s for the United States, where utilities switched the burner, what are called burner tip flips, going from uh, heavier oils or coals to to nat to natural gas, um, and Henry Hub filled that in. Asia started to do the same thing, and it was in parallel with rising economies, and and China, Korea, Taiwan, and Japan dominated that that point in time. China, uh, especially in the 90s, coming into the early 2000s, they saw the opportunity to to use LNG very quickly, and they built um, uh, where the U.S. had very Euro, U.S. and Europe had very mature gas pipelines. 
China did not. So they actually allowed them to say, look, we can use LNG and we'll just build what are called regas and it'll go directly into pipelines. We didn't have to go through the whole drilling and you know tapping our own oil to find gas and such. So so they had a use case for it. And then Korea, similarly too, a cleaner economy. And they saw the advent, uh, advent of gas, very little oil resources of their own. So LNG became a source. And we're talking about countries, um, China with a long water coast and Korea Peninsula, Taiwan an island and Japan, a series of islands. So waterborne transportation made it very efficient to use LNG. Now, leap forward, every major Southeast Asia, Middle Asia, and East Asia are all LNG consumers today, whether it's Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand. It is amazing how the gas has been adopted. The more amazing thing is it doesn't have its own price or at least it, it, it is beginning to have its own price. But the legacy of how LNG was priced was really determined by the Japanese, going back to the legacy of, because it was really just a tail on the back of, of oil production where LNG came from. So it was priced against oil on a percentage basis. And for a lot of years that worked if we didn't have volatile oil markets. And, uh, but as you get to demand, and as when demand comes, you've got greater demand for finance and you've got a greater demand for ships, greater demand for insurance. Suddenly, you've got a greater demand for a mark-to-market price that's more relevant to the underlying commodity as opposed to it being risk-correlated to a commodity that, in this case, it was predominantly Brent oil. That really came to the forefront in, in 2011 when Japan suffered the great earthquake and tsunamis and basically imploded their their energy sector, shut off their entire atomic, uh, their nuclear facilities across the country. And they quickly turned to LNG. And LNG prices with virtually no market formation, it was in mostly in long-term contracts at that point in time, very little spot or free-floating boats. The price of LNG went from basically $5 an MMBTU to almost $21 in virtually weeks. It completely flipped the market on its head and showed the weakness of the market, uh, delinked from the price of, of crude oil that it had been tagged to for years. And subsequently, people have looked at it to how do we, how do we fix this? Well, no one has fixed it, but at the same time, more and more gas has been discovered. So it's, it's mitigated the, the supply issue, it's exacerbated people looking at it as a cleaner source of energy. And at the same time, it's, it's fragmented how it's actually priced. So now you've got, you've got some pricing in the US based on Henry Hub. You've got some pricing based on what's called JKM, which is a, a, a Platts-based number. That's an aggregator of previous uh, cash uh, or spot deals that are reported between uh, Japan and Korea. And you come up with a number and then it's a financial hedge, but it's not a performance hedge, meaning there's no deliverability on that number. And some are still tied to Brent. Um, less and less are tied to that. So people are still seeking a definitive pricing point for uh, LNG. Singapore has been incredibly well positioned and it was actually part of my carbon view was began with looking at LNG as a clean fuel or transition fuel over the next few decades uh, weaning ourselves away from from heavier and dirtier fuels and coal. Singapore has become a trading center 
when I first came here in 03, as at an invitation of prime minister's office to actually launch energy trading or bring energy trading uh, from an exchange level to Singapore, there were, I think, 22 companies that were energy specific. And they were more mostly on the major end of it. It was the Shells and the Exxons and the Chevrons that had a legacy here. Today, there's an excess of 136 companies that are energy specific traders. And close to 45 of those are LNG specific traders. There were virtually no LNG trading companies here 10 years ago. And that's really been at the behest of two major agencies here in Singapore, uh, EDB, Economic Development Bureau of Singapore, and ESG, Enterprise Singapore, that oversees spot commodities and, and encourages businesses to come here. And at the same time, a number of gas trading entities or their gas trading desks that had been euro-based migrated to Singapore over the last five, six years, uh, and now trade LNG, their global LNG desk sits in Singapore, not in London or, or Geneva. And equally so, the Japanese who used did all their hedging from Tokyo and Osaka and Nagoya have moved a no- large number of their LNG trading desks to Singapore. And so have the Chinese majors. So it's been this organic growth. And yet, <laughs> we don't have a, a an on-exchange price for LNG. And that's a market opportunity. It's really amazing, Tom, because having listened to Jeff Curry's interview last week, he emphasized so strongly the importance in these locational markets for the price discovery to work. You've got to really intelligently think through the delivery location and the the deliverability of the contract. So literally, you've got LNG, this super important, it's a big part of the green revolution and the shift away from from burning crude oil and, and coal and so forth. It's a lot of this is moving to LNG. And you're literally got a market that's growing in Singapore. And what they're doing is they're looking at the United States, not LNG, but but uncompressed natural gas Henry Hub contract. You know, take that, divide it by the square root of the phase of the moon plus last week's Brent price, and then throw in a random number generator, and you, you kind of got where you think you're going to start your bid in the morning. That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. So you're talking about creating a new LNG contract, which is going to be based in Singapore, and it's not trading Henry Cobb natural gas. It's trading LNG. But right now today, at the end of 2020, while we're recording this interview, we don't have anywhere in the world a physical delivery futures contract for LNG. We, we've only got the Henry Hub contract for, for regular natural gas. Why is the physical delivery part so important? And how are you going to design a physical delivery LNG market in Singapore? Just as a bit of a correction, there actually is there actually is a contract, and that's a Gulf Coast, but that's an export contract out of the U.S. Um, and that's different than and they're supplying Asia potentially. And again, it's a uniquely North American construct. Um, for Asia, one of the big challenges is infrastructure. And LNG is infrastructure heavy. You have gas trains at the beginning that takes the gas, strips it out of the components of, of whether it's, it's mining, uh, oil specifically crude, or, or, or you actually have gas fields, compressing it, putting it into the LNG state, loading it into LNG carriers, which are specific to the transportation mode. And then legacy is that you, when you get to your destination, you do a regas and it goes from its liquid state to a gas state and gets piped into pipelines, 
right? And that's how it's been done for a lot of years. What you needed in, in the interim was that you actually needed storage. You needed what was called third-party access, the ability to have a commercial. And that's been the success of a lot of the energy contracts over time, really. Um, the, the ability to, to produce, store, trade, and, and retransport. LNG is getting to that, to that stage. So you have that third-party access storage or regasification or gas in, gas out facilities now in Asia. So it's, it's caught up. And at the same time, if you went back just five years ago, the majority of LNG contracts were long-term dated contracts. You had very little free-floating gas or spot gas. That has significantly changed in the last five years. You've gone from what was about 15 to 20% of the total production of LNG being spot or swing to heading towards past 50% today that you've got swing gas. And once you go through that in a commodity life cycle, then you get free price market formation and reference pricing. And that, and that probably most recently is that happened in the iron ore market going back 10 and eight years ago where it had been long-term and then it broke down into, into spot. And then you had a great pricing formation and a market formation around it, both here in Singapore and, and the Dalian contracts in China. That's what we're seeing in LNG. And that's the opportunity for ABEX and for a price in Singapore, uh, that market part of it, reforming its market infrastructure to spot, the ability to have an infrastructure where you could, where you can produce gas, transport it, store it, retransport it. The potential for floating storage is now come at hand because the the technology would allow for a boat to be a floating storage and act as basically an LNG uh, break bulk carrier where you could break it into smaller cargoes without actually having to to remove it from the ship once. And uh, that market is and so it's been very rapid, and the equipment. There were very few LNG carriers just uh, five to eight years ago, and now they're being they're being built on a regular basis. Where it had been, you know, VLCCs and Panamax oil carriers are now building LNG carriers. So it's a, it's a significant shift in timing and opportunity that's allowing this to happen here. So you're building a LNG futures market that will transact and be regulated in Singapore. You're building that right now. Now, is that part of this same project? In other words, if, if I were to, when you first start trading, if I go buy the first LNG contract and I stand for, for delivery, do I get a paper warehouse receipt or do I get a digital token, which is the what essentially Jeff Curry told us is the way of the future? Yeah, yeah, no paper. <laughs> Let's uh, we're saving the trees. <laughs> so, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's going to be electronified, and, and and it'll be a definitive record with full a immutability, but also the ability to you'll see the defining market, the underlying product, location, time, specification, price, counterparties, and and that's significantly different than how commodities perform on exchanges today. Very often, an exchange loves to take all of the credit for the price, the margining, the fee structure. But when it comes to performance, you basically, when it goes X exchange, you're very happy to hand it off to the counterparties and say, hey, thanks very much for doing it here. No longer are we performing. <laughs> so we can take that opportunity to have to, to push it all the way through to performance, uh, especially in the documentation phase. It's really important. So digital is very important for us. 
So you're building both the LNG futures exchange and the tokenization using Ethereum smart contracts as your distributed ledger technology for delivering digital token uh, equivalents of what used to be warehouse receipts. And that's going to provide this new LNG market to Singapore. Now, in the technology side of this, the, the side of this that I actually know a little bit about, there's a religious war going on around these distributed ledgers. You know, some people think blockchain is forever. Proof of work the, they, they see is, is a good thing. Other people say proof of work is, a, is an overhead that needs to be eliminated. I know from talking to Josh Crum, your partner, that you've designed all of this with an abstraction layer that kind of insulates you from uh, future changes and allowing you to move to a different distributed ledger technology without having to redo all of your work. So it's not Ethereum and Ethereum smart contracts forever. But since that's where you're starting, we got a lot of questions on, on Twitter and, and so forth about this. Why Ethereum? Why did you choose that platform to build your tokenized system? What does it do for you? Where does the Ethereum smart contract construct come into this whole story? I think there's a lot of debate whether Ethereum is the best or, or not, and, you've, and you definitively have competitors, and, and some are, are coming up to scale. I think the, the, the value of, of Ethereum is, is, it's, is the nature of it and, and the open market architecture around it. And, and it's become, it became really a defining development point from all of the people that began to look at the opportunities around digital markets architecture and smart contract constructs. It, it far and above has has the greatest support from the from the uh, the decentralized community of developers, and I think that's one point. Two points: it works, um, <laughs> and and it's going to go through a phase of change. You're going to get the ETH 2.0 very quickly, which should bring some greater efficiencies to it. But that's the the entire blockchain construct and digital markets architecture are going to go through transitions and better efficiencies. I mean, one of the great debates was. When ETH first came out, if it could be used on an exchange market, and the whole thing was about messages per second, MPS was the greatest buzz, and people would compare Ethereum and, and Bitcoin transactions to to uh, Mastercard. Mastercard could do seventeen thousand transactions, MPS, and you know Ethereum could do sixty-two. Ha ha ha! And as important as transactional speed is, accuracy is becoming way more important. And the ability and ETH is evolving, right? And there's lots of different ways that they've done it. So putting putting speed aside, Josh is very, very passionate about what he calls middleware. And middleware is the transportability of an exchange market development infrastructure that gives you the ability to to move and be flexible and not be locked into any single technology provider or partner. And I think that's really important of, of how... ABEX as an exchange or ABEX tech is going to evolve in time. And, and it's good foresight because I can tell you a lot of exchanges are very legacy tied to their original core tech providers. And, and it's like a spider web. Even if you want to disconnect from it, you realize that you can't, uh, that it just became so embedded systemically that uh, it's been very important to Josh and his development team to not allow that happen and be, be flexible for the future. Tom, there's another dimension to the work that you guys are doing at ABEX, and it has to do with building digital identity validation, secure access, and so forth. Now, in the beginning, when I first saw the demo of the early versions of the ID++ product, 
I didn't get it. I thought it was just like a, a chat group for traders that happened to be a lot more secure than the average internet chat group. It's really a lot deeper than that because this idea of secure authentication of traders in a distributed network gets tied in to how these fungible digital tokens are allowed to be used once you've got an exchange system that's based on them. Give our listeners an overview of the big picture here. What What is this digital authentication business and why is it so important and how does it tie into the rest of the system? Yeah, I think, I mean, from my experience here and what we've done in Singapore, and and, and it's really comes from regulatory and, it, and it's very new. And the whole concept, one, if it's just digital identity is one, but the KYC and AML and FATF requirements of how you've had a client or a customer or and and source funds i mean it's just it's it becomes exponential the key is is secure identity right so for an exchange like abax the key is whether it's a client or a member right comes to the to approaches the system and says i want to i want to trade let's just use a baseline i want to become a member how do you become a member well is the standard who are you where are you from Right. And then it becomes down to, all right, we've got to screen you. Right. So digital identity has created a lot of efficiencies. It's taken, hopefully, a lot of the paper, uh, paperwork out of it and sending documents and the electronic chain of security from uh, digital signatures all the way to to uh, live liveness, meaning if they're taking a, you're, you're taking a picture, the technology can allow to prove that it's not static, that it's actually you, to uh, securely digitizing private documentation and putting it into basically your own digital wallet, but that wallet also sits systemically for use case of, of becoming a member of an exchange or also to own a commodity, right? That now you are the proprietary owner of a specific commodity or a contract or a portion of open interest on an exchange in a future situation. Collateral lending, right? identification. So systemically, you create a single point in time that you don't have to repeat this process is very interesting also. That is an incredibly repetitive process today still in, in, in a large part of the world that you could go to three different financial institutions and say, and want to do exactly the same thing, even open a credit card. And that you, they'd ask you, there's no single point that they would accept to say that, oh, oh yeah, that's you right? That is a game changer. And that's part of what what, uh, what Josh and the team are doing at ABEX to create that, that single repository uh, of regulatory compliant identity that can be used not just to become a member of an exchange or to own a commodity, but also to be part of a community, uh, a secure community, and whether it's in a conversation or, or investment community, right? And, and then you can replicate that exponentially. That could become a, a travel document, Right. I think one of the more interesting things is, you know, we're in the middle of COVID. One of the things that we will have to have going forward is we're going to have to have a medical passport for, for lack of a, a more specific term that defines what is our state on, uh, from vaccination. Right. Before Qantas Airlines has already said, uh, you've got to produce a, a vaccination document before you'll get onto any of my airplanes. Let's put that onto a global scale. How do you manage that? You do that through a digital identifier, right? That's secure. So it, it, it's not just going to be one application for becoming a member of an exchange or to trade a commodity. It's going to be much more broad than that, uh, the, the capabilities and future of it. 
Tom, final question. I'm sure we've got a lot of listeners with the wheels turning in their minds about all the possibilities here, but I would imagine there's different groups of interest because some people are thinking about the fintech aspect of what Abex Technologies is, designing a market which is going to be a tokenized futures market where you can trade these fungible warehouse receipt digital bearer instruments around a network and so forth. There's also a side of this, which is going to be people who are not technology people, but energy people saying, wait a minute, LNG contract in Singapore, that's that's a game-changing event. When does that start? So for both of those groups of people, how do they find out more about this? Because unfortunately, we're running out of time. We're going to have to wrap this one up for today. Yep. Thanks, Eric. And and, and basically, there's two points of entry. Clearly, I mean, abax.exchange, and that is the exchange, and that's relevant to the to the project and what, what, what we're doing here in Singapore, and that's commodity-specific. But I think the other point of entry is you should look at abax.tech, and, and that's clearly the parent to the exchange, but it really is the future for, for the ABEX family. It, it is a, an amazingly broad vision of, of bringing the best in technology and best in practices to the forefront. And it's, and it's clearly a vision. It's evolved over a number of years and it's very Josh driven. And I'll just, I'll, I'll close on one point. Um, I think uh, we've probably all heard that at one time or another, somebody says, look, look son, don't reinvent the wheel. Somewhere along the line, Josh didn't get the message. Josh is reinventing the wheel. And it is absolutely amazing, the intricacies uh, of what he's doing with ABAX Tech. And it, it's, it's going to be enlightening, and it's going to be a great journey. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it as much as uh, hopefully everybody is who's listening to this. Tom, thanks so much for a terrific interview. I can't wait to get you back on in a few months for an update on the work that you and the team at ABAX are doing. Listeners, I've been dumbfounded by our first four episodes. When Josh Crum first told me that he was going to design a smarter commodity futures market that fully embraces secure digital bearer instrument technology, I immediately told him that I wanted to invest in this new venture as an angel investor because I personally had no doubt that he was going to eventually change the industry. Someday. But I also told Josh that my prediction was it was going to be a long, slow sell because I just didn't think the industry was ready to accept change on anything close to the scale that Josh and the ABEX team were contemplating. I couldn't possibly have been more wrong. As Robert Friedland, Marian Ayati, and Jeff Curry told us in the first three episodes, this industry is anxiously awaiting new technology to provide an overdue solution for a long list of long-standing problems. And as Tom McMahon described in this episode, the ABEX team is already hard at work turning this vision into reality. My guest next week will be Charlie McGarra, Chief Strategy Officer at Blockchain.com. Charlie is both a heavy macro thinker and a thought leader in the area of tokenization of financial markets. We're going to take a deep dive into exactly what terms like tokenization and secure digital bearer instrument actually mean, and why they're going to be so important in defining the way the next generation of financial markets will work. That's coming up next week on Smarter Markets. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests on the caliber of Jeff Curry, Maria Mayati, and Robert Friedland. And we have a veritable who's who of industry legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via word of mouth. 
For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.